Now, world like today's, and especially now with the proliferation of populist parties, it's obvious that it's quite dangerous. It's very, very dangerous to let the majority rule. The Goldwaters is brought to you by Goldwater Dubé, shaping the history of Canadian family law since 1981. The Goldwaters vous est présenté par Goldwater Dubé, modelé l'histoire du droit familial canadien depuis 1981. Welcome back to The Goldwaters. I am your moderator, Dan Delmar, and here with Anne France. How was your summer, Michael Blotter? Oh, my summer was wonderful. My daughter finally got married after 20 years with her husband. Mazel tov. And uh, it turns out that she wanted to take a honeymoon, which I hadn't anticipated, and that therefore I, as the grandmother, had to take care of my grandchildren for my grandchildren's honeymoon with me. And how's Mr. Spot? Mr. Spot is wonderful. He still continues to get physiotherapy every week, both at home and at the hospital. So he's quite a popular guy out there on the South Shore. He visits all the cats and dogs at the veterinary hospital, and uh, he enjoys swimming in a pool and doing all these things you need to strengthen your front legs when your back legs don't function. I think we're up to his fifth or sixth wheelchair because he's a very energetic boy. And, uh, and other than that, I find he's still getting, he continues to get a little stronger as every month goes by, a little bit more adept with his feet, but I'm not sure that he'll ever really walk again. And for fans of Mr. Spot, uh, do stay tuned to the Goldwater Dubé channels because we'll have new pictures and video and updates uh, about your favorite pit bull soon. Uh, today, not pit bulls, but the notwithstanding clause, Aunt France. Uh, you've been following this for many years. Is this something that you think eventually will have to be undone in the Canadian Constitution? There are two answers to that. One's political, one's legal. The political answer is, uh, is that this was a necessary compromise Trudeau one had to make with the other provinces after Quebec stabbed the other provincial premiers in the back, which is the true version of the Night of the Long Knives. Really, it's like really a story about Quebec's betrayal of the rest of Canada. And he had to make this compromise with the other provinces to get their buy-in to accept the charter. Because otherwise, he would have had to make a deal with Quebec and given Quebec a special status, which would have been an even worse solution. So that's the political answer. And in such a context, I would want the notwithstanding clause undone. There's another legal juridical way to look at it and to say that since we were transitioning from a parliamentary to a constitutional democracy, a way to have eased that transition, wherein at the end of the day, it's the courts that are the ultimate ultimate guardians of the Charter of Rights, is to have a little bit of a compromise, a transitional provision, where the government, to maintain a little bit of its old uh, parliamentary supremacy, can, for a period, a maximum period of five years, suspend the annulling effect of the charter so that a law, which is otherwise constitutional, the courts can still declare it as unconstitutional, would still remain in effect for a certain period of time. And I've noted that even to this day, a lot of people have great difficulty understanding the importance of the role of the judiciary in safeguarding charter rights and why parliament is not supreme. But we have lived time and time again in this province, the ignominy of having populist governments who wouldn't understand a charter of rights from their rear ends. And that starts with Bill 101. And that continues today with the the anti-hijab legislation. And if you didn't have a federal charter to put an end to 
to these ignominious actions of the oppressive majority, you'd never have, you'd never be able to protect minority rights because every generation throws up its oppressed minority. And in every generation, humanity being what it is, there's a, a glee that the majority have of oppressing the minority. The, the, the concept of not laissez-faire capitalism, but laissez-faire social interactions seems to be anathema to a lot of people. Because who would understand why today? In the day when the French were sensitive and went wild against the English for whatever reason that totally escaped me as a Jew, you got it. You understand. They, they thought they were the, uh, the minority, and so they figured they were oppressing the majority, how wrong they were. But in today's world, why are you bothering a handful of Muslim ladies or Sikh and Jewish men because an article of clothing bothers you? You know, people walk down the street every day and what they wear bothers me. But I'm, even I'm polite enough not to say anything about it. We're going to talk about Bill 21, the Religious Symbols Law, as well as Bill 101, and uh, the Notwithstanding Clause in general, and how this uh, has changed the face of Canada to some degree. We're going to welcome our guest in a moment, Maitre Julius Gray, Montreal-based constitutional lawyer. And uh, let's begin on The Goldwaters. So this is the funniest part of today's podcast, because Julius was my professor back in law school, like, what, 45, 50, 60 years ago? <laughs> Not 60. <laughs> Not 60. When we were younger and fresher, more febrile and nubile. Right? Right, right. right. We right, definitely right, were right. younger. <laughs> you in particular were 17. <laughs> ah, shucks. I'm glad you'd remember. So uh, tell me, Julius, what's your perspective on the notwithstanding clause? Well, the notwithstanding clause, in its sort of abstract form, is part of one tradition of Anglo-Saxon legal thinking. There's always been opposition to charters and so on. There's always been um, a, a current of thought uh, which believed in parliamentary supremacy. And it's represented today, for instance, by Professor Frank Buckley, who used to be at McGill and is now in uh, Washington. And he wrote a book about the importance of the British parliamentary system and parliamentary, parliamentary supremacy. When I was studying in England, for instance, uh, that was quite a, a frequently heard opinion that the American system with its Bill of Rights or all the other Bill of Rights were not good. The answer is, just to try to put the two together, that in a very homogeneous society, uh, that might be fine. Um, and in particular, of course, British society of the 19th or 18th century, when parliamentary supremacy was all it was, was basically government by a little elite, a small elite of people who were all white. Uh, towards the end of it, a few of them were Catholic and a few of them were Jewish, but on the whole, they were all Anglican, and uh, the rest didn't count. And so you can understand how you could trust the majority. But in a world like today's, and especially now with the proliferation of populist parties, it's obvious that it's quite dangerous. It's very, very dangerous to let the majority rule. What if the majority votes for Adolf Hitler? It did in 1933. What if the majority... So it's not a function of modernity. In 1933, he was extremely popular it, with the German common it, it, man yeah. and the intelligentsia. Yeah, yeah, but Germany was a country also quite varied with two religions and, and, and a tradition of different political things. It would have been better off with a charter so that somebody could have tried to stop him. Um, I don't know that, it, you know, he would have sent the, the stormtroopers to the court. But uh, the... Um, 
the fact is that democracy is not all about majority. Democracy is about, and it's not even minority rights, that too, majority, minority, but individual rights. The right of the person who lives in a democracy to say, I, I, I don't agree. I don't agree with what the majority has decided. Now, the majority, of course, can elect a government, can have the type of budget. It's up to the majority or whatever the electoral system is to decide if we're going to have a left or right government. But it's not up to the majority that I have to approve of it or what I will wear or what I will eat or um, Or what language I will, I will speak. Well, there are certain things, of course, that have to be uh, majority. You can't uh, write to the government of Quebec in, in a language they don't understand. They, they'll return the letter to you. But you're right. It's not up to them to get inside people's home and to dictate that sort of thing. Um, in this world, in the world in which we live, which is varied everywhere, very diverse, very different, you have to have an arbiter which is not just the majority. Imagine, for instance, a place like Cyprus. If you uh, unite it and have pure majority rule, no Turk will be ap appointed to public office, 50% or not. Never will a Turkish person get uh, an office because there's such mistrust between the two groups that they just won't. Isn't that the first time Canadian peacekeepers intervened? I think they were there. They were in Gaza in 56, 57. They were That's Gaza, but the... the, the Turkey, yeah. Cypri, they did. That was 74. In 74, we had uh, Canadian troops there, but Cyprus is an example of a place where you could just do it by majority rule. If you wanted to reunite Cyprus, you'd have to guarantee Turkish rights. Um, uh, you have problems with all sorts of countries uh, that have majority-minority problems that don't have a strong functioning uh, charter. For instance, I think Mr. Modi would need a charter to control him right now, and he doesn't have one. I think there are many, many countries where that is so. So why is there such a difficulty, notably in the province of Quebec and the French educational system, to teach young people of the importance? You know, Quebec, after all, in on many levels, socially is an extremely socially okay. tolerant progressive and progressive place to live. Uh, I've seen tremendous tolerance for gay rights as yeah. I was growing gay up. Gay rights, like, abortion, know, and so on. Quebec abortion, is very, very progressive on all the, the black, white, black white relationships. Uh, yeah, the black I never, white relationships, but then everybody in Canada is more or less, except the Montreal police, but everybody, <laughs> uh, but, but on the whole, uh, I meant, I meant intimate relationships, yeah. by the way, oh, not with the police. No, yeah, well, definitely Quebec is very tolerant of that way. And you okay, go to so the why? You'll see many mixed marriages. And exactly. Well, that's, I guess, my experience of the last 40 years, because that's what I'm looking at. So why then is it so difficult for a society that has such a strong cultural wave of tolerance for many levels of difference between the majority and minority? And look, let's keep aside the English question for now. Why are they unable to teach their own children of the protective effect of the federal charter? That that is a essential to the protection of individual rights and freedoms. First of all, Quebec comes, uh, even though it no longer follows and even has formally repudiated it, comes from a Catholic tradition of authority. Um, you don't make waves. In, uh, in a small Quebec town in 1900, uh, you didn't go out against the priest unless you were prepared to be um, the bad guy forever. Uh, when uh, my wife was a little girl, uh, the priest would check if they were absent for mass for two or three consecutive weeks. What's the problem? So that was a society which was not liberal in, in that sense. It was free. There were elections. 
elections. There were all sorts of things, but it wasn't liberal in that way. But there's another thing. In the 50s, 60s, 70s, as Quebec modernized its nationalism, it decided that it only had one thing going for it. That is the majority in Quebec. That's why they pretty well gave up on defending Franco-Canadians in other places. They, they pay lip service to it, but they don't really go out on a limb for Franco-Saskatchewan or Franco-Alberta uh, because they believe that in the end, the only thing that's keeping them going is that they're the majority in Quebec. And they're afraid, of course, that uh, federally named judges will uh, take away the effects of their Quebec majority. They're and is this the reason they socially at least repudiate the charter instead of having a broad vision of a bilingual nation with francophone because we know but, thanks to the they charter. Have a, they have a charter. The they have French, a charter which is the same, pretty well the same as the federal charter. But the federal charter protects francophone minority rights across the yeah. nation. We've seen very powerful yeah, judgments of many, the Midwest, many people, Ontario, many people the Maritimes. You see people are not always um, uh, logical with themselves. Many people in Quebec uh -huh. will tell you that they're against the federal charter, but they're for the Quebec charter. So are you for or against freedom of expression, freedom of association? Well, we don't need Ottawa to tell us that. And in the same way, uh, a Republican governor in Kentucky brought in what he called Kentucky Care. And all the people said they're opposed to Obamacare, but they like Kentucky Care. But it was exactly the same thing. It was just called Kentucky Care. And so uh, what you've got is a, a fear that French will be reversed. But, of course, there's no need to fear because, first of all, the courts have not been, uh, as the, the some of the nationalists claim, uniformly against Bill 101. They turned down any attempt to repeal it wholesale. Uh, in, the, in the science case, there was an attempt to say that language is a federal domain and therefore they can't legislate at all. That didn't go very far. I think Alan Singer won the science case just as much as everybody else. Yes, he did. If but you think about it. It's yeah, like the did. abortion case. It's like Morgenthaler. You know very well the Supreme Court didn't actually... The Supreme Court invalidated the law in, in Alan Singer yeah. case, just as they invalidated abortion restrictions exactly. in, uh, but, but in the, Morgenthaler. But the thing is that the, the courts have not been against protecting French. The courts have, on the other hand, come in to defend individual rights. Uh, my right to put up a Polish sign. Uh, anybody else's right to um, uh, wear something that uh, I wouldn't wear, but that they're free to wear. And that takes us to Marie-Hélène, because that accelerates us right into Bill 21. Marie-Hélène, as having been lead counsel in the case of Delila Awada, uh, a young uh, intellectual and beautiful woman born in the province of Quebec, who went to court to defend her rights to wear a, a hijab. Mm -hmm. And she has quite a collection of very beautiful and feminine hijabs. Permit me to add, and uh, not that that should matter, by the way, but it's just, it's people walk in the street and wear unattractive clothes. We're not allowed to say anything, but if you wear a beautiful color hijab, suddenly you're reprehensible. <laughs> so since you had that experience, the hate and opprobrium directed at young Muslim women, what do you think of Bill 21? Well, I think that it's uh, perpetuating this hate because we can see now that uh, even the reasons that were put forward to adopt Bill 21, which were 
soi-disant to have uh, to put an end to a debate that was uh, painful for Quebec. Uh, so this is what the Legault government was arguing. We have to do this law as soon as possible to stop this because this conversation has been harmful to us Quebecers for too long. Well, what but what we can see is that yeah, it's... But, wait, but what conversation was harmful so our, reader, our readers, our listeners should know? Well, they claim that uh, the, minor, the religious minorities asking for accommodations, reasonable accommodations, uh, started a crisis and that... But what crisis? Uh, yeah, what I crisis? think we all agree between the three of us that there were never a crisis, but yeah. they presented it as a crisis uh, and they created a, a, a crisis out of something it, that was not It's a non-existent problem. It's a non-existent problem. Yeah. There is a... How many people? Uh, how many people wear the hijab or wear a turban? Uh, quite a few wear a keeper, but what difference does it make? But they managed to make to make it a real problem. And there are parents who now say, "I don't want my child to be in the classroom of this teacher because she's wearing a hijab." Well, so a, the, <laughs> they, that it, that was it, never the, they, said they before. But now with the law, a streak of nationalism that yeah. was there, a sort of basic feeling: this is ours. Conform. Yes. And um, uh, not ma I don't think it's a majority. I don't think it's, uh, it certainly doesn't represent the Quebec that I know. But there always has been that in Quebec, just like it, I, I, most places have things that are not pleasant in its psyche. You can find it in Germany, of course, but in France and everywhere. And there are, are minorities that have that sort of feeling. Yeah, but the thing that I don't understand uh, in all of this It, you know, because this, you can't just blame it on uh, Legault's government, uh, the CAC, because even the preceding government, Pauline Marois, wanted to ban the wearing of religious symbols, right? And, you know, what is a religious symbol and what is religious clothing? I mean, I, I really don't understand that. There are people who wear all kinds of strange things. You know, Madonna and, uh, with her little red string Again, around. In the days the when we were children, around. the French schools were largely staffed by priests and nuns, uh, or uh, 10 years before. Mm -hmm. And uh, they certainly, before Vatican II, they all wore the full regalia, and there was no problem. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I learned all my Christmas carols in Latin. I <laughs> learned the Mass in Latin, and I think I'm a better person for it, and it didn't make me any less Jewish or Zionist, because I love teasing Julius. Zionist, I'm a Zionist, but a Zionist. Go right ahead. <laughs> a Zionist. My belief in freedom of speech extends to Zionism with some difficulty. Yes! <laughs> but at least I know my Pater Noster in, in uh, Latin. But that didn't bother me. The part I don't understand, if Madonna wants to wear red string around her wrist because she somehow thinks she's Jewish and she loves the Kabbalah, it's not my business. And if our federal minister of defense wants to be our federal minister of defense wearing a turban because he's a Sikh and comes, no doubt, from a long line of noble warriors, many of whom fought and defended Canada during our great wars. One of the mistakes often made by, in, by Quebecers who talk about it is that they put it in terms of majority and minority and they say well the majority doesn't like this and minority does and majority in a democracy rules they forget the more important element individual rights it doesn't matter what the minority or the majority thinks in Absalom the Supreme Court told us it doesn't matter what the chief rabbi thinks is Jewish or not what matters is whether the person is asking for an accommodation so but, let but me I'm explain once I'll go so I'm going to come, right. come to you Marilyn because I'm going to ask you about mm -hmm. the Kirpan case Multani but the Absalom 
Jerusalem case, uh, all the big religious cases come from Quebec, because of course other provinces don't discriminate against the religious minorities as openly. No, there are a couple Maybe of on Alberta, a, there is a few. Yeah, but uh, well, of course, the, our cousin province for other reasons politically, right? Um, but in Quebec, the Amsalem case uh, involved, I think it was a residence des sanctuaires in yeah. Outremont, where uh, a number of Jewish residents of that uh, condo development wanted to put up an individual sukkot on their balconies. And that's a, a little bit of temporary housing you put up to celebrate the harvest season. I mean, no doubt it comes from our pagan ancestors. And along the way, when we became Jews, before you guys became Christians, um, we we adapted this harvest festival and called it uh, Sukkot and put up this little temporary house with some some greens and sheafs of, uh, of, of ripened veggies and so on. I want to keep it from getting too arcane. And so this was objected to by the Condo Owners Association. It and went they objected to, to it so strongly, court. they even included abandoned Christmas trees because they realized they couldn't get away yes. with one and not the other. They were prepared to sacrifice their Christmas trees and their lights in order not to have the sukkah. Mm-hmm. Right. So one of the three mm-hmm. fellows in particular who attacked the case, and I remember Judge Bastarash, as he then was, really lombed on to this guy, insisted up and down when he was examined, he doesn't, he wouldn't be satisfied with having a, a, a general symbol in the entrance of the condo building, like putting up a sukkah. No, it wasn't just Bastarash, it was Rochon, for instance. No, but I mean Supreme Court. Supreme, Bastarash at Supreme Court. Uh, Bastarash was very, very, he dissented it in a very uh, vehement mm-hmm. way. Okay. But he, he, he was analyzing this fellow's testimony because he had been cross-examined and he, his daughter, the, he celebrates Sukkot actually at the home of his daughter and she puts up a Sukkot and what's wrong? You know, there is no religious law that says every individual has to put one up of his own, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so they brought religious evidence to, that went they all the way to the, the Supreme the, Court. The, the, dean, the dean of McGill uh, uh, Religious Studies, who was a rabbi, come and testify. But the Supreme Court, the majority in the Supreme Court held that it didn't matter because what matters is what those people thought individually. And that's where Quebec often misses the argument. They see it as a battle between two groups and the majority group should prevail. But they forget the right of an individual to dissent both from his group or her group and from the majority group. And and I think that's the core of the issue is that they want to portray this as an opposition between uh, individual rights and collective rights. They want to say that there are collective rights that the chargers should protect and that, for example, laicity should be one of these collective rights uh, that should prevail over individual rights. And Secularism, uh, in other words. Yes, but, but there's diff- <laughs> it's an it's a unperfect the, the translation. The notion of a collective right is, in yeah. fact, an error. In a democracy where the majority runs and can pass laws, they don't need collective rights. Collective Mm -hmm. rights is a palatable way of saying we won't obey individual rights. We can violate your individual rights by invoking some vague notion of collective rights. Apart from a few concepts such as uh, ownership of of common areas and condominiums and maybe some uh, First Nation rights, etc., collective rights don't exist. It's not that we have a collective right to security and therefore we have to limit the criminal's basic right. Mm -hmm. It's that we have the power to legislate, and to some extent, we can legislate public safety. And we don't need to call it collective right. We're legislating for everybody safety, 
uh, and its individual rights. It's each person's individual safety, not a collective safety. I personally and could not agree more with rights. you, but I think that uh, the, whether it's jurists or politicians have been good at using this notion to make it acceptable to override individual yeah, rights. It's absolutely ridiculous. When they, They've been doing it in labor law all the time, saying that it's collective rights, but it's not. It's not the rights of the working class that are defended in a labor uh, court. It's each individual's right to his job, to his health and security, and so on. It's just that these rights are collectively enforced because otherwise they're too weak against the employer. But I think both of you have yet to address, I, I don't want to say you failed to address, but you've yet to address the thing that bothered me about the Amsalom case that really made me jump out of my skin, which is if the Supreme Court accepts that religion is whatever any individual says it is with no standard, no ascertainable standard, then for me that becomes anarchy, and I'll explain why. When you buy the condo as an individual, signing with a company, which is a group of individuals, you sign a contract where you say you're not going to put any structures on your balcony because there's a fire hazard, there's an insurance issue, and I think you even have to sign in some condos restrictions about what curtains you can put up for that, the aesthetic beauty of the That was the a building. dissent of Mr. Justice Binney and the position of, uh, at least I think, uh, Mr. Justice Dalfo in the Court of Appeal. The problem with that position is that goes precisely against our labor legislation. You go and you sign a, a, an agreement uh, uh, with your employer and both people freely sign that you can be dismissed at 24 hours notice at any time and then the courts won't enforce that. And it's the same thing here. You have no choice. No, if no, you need no, no. A, There's an imbalance of power. I don't agree. There is when an imbalance of power when you're purchasing a condominium uh, in, in, in an area like the sanctuary that can sell all the condominiums and you come in and if, the, you, if you say you don't because you need a sukkah, they're going to say, well, you go somewhere else. And therefore, you will not have full opportunities as a, a citizen. So I, I don't buy the contract theory of that. There's a limit to how far you can inf you can breach contracts in the name of, of, of uh, uh, your um, uh, religious, religious, religious or other rights, religious or freedom of expression. Suppose uh, uh, the condominium required that you not put up uh, uh, an electoral sign during electoral campaigns, etc. I think you would be able to say uh, I might not have got in there because there's a bunch of snoots and and uh, therefore, within certain limits, contract does not have precedence over basic rights. In, f in but fact, but then you have to presume that the that there's a basic right, like a religious freedom, which means you got to have an objective foundation for what a religious freedom is. Otherwise, I could go to a condo and say, "I'm buying a condo, and I want to move in they with do. my well, five they, dogs, who all weigh 150 pounds each, only because I love dogs, because I'm a dog worshiper. No, they, These are my gods." No, they, there are two limits. The first limit is that there has to be a, a religious belief yeah. And it can be whatever it is. It can be you. You can declare yourself to be a, a Catholic and not believe in the Pope or not believe in the resurrection. You can do whatever you want. The second limit is it has to be sincere. So that if you set up a religion whose tenet is basically not paying income tax, they won't buy that from you. I like and, that and religion. That's right. And but the third condition is that even with all that sincere and uh, religious, 
If it's too onerous for society, you cannot. It's like the Jewish holidays case in the case of Shambli School Board. They held that they had to give the Jewish teachers uh, who were t- teaching at Shambli, Yom Kippur, and Rosh Hashanah. But if they had taken all the 50 holidays or 60 holidays that you find in the Jewish religious calendar <laughs> and said, you modify your collective agreement to let us off for 50 or 60 days, it would have been too onerous. Baruch Hashem. Hashem uh, wanted us to have 50, 60 well, that's days right. off a year. But there's a limit to what you can do. In the same way, for instance, you can have a street festival, a Hindu street festival, a Catholic street festival, a Jewish street festival. But if you require that Montreal be clogged up <laughs> four out of seven days every week, they're going to tell you we have the greatest respect for you. We like your religion, but we can't let you. Ah, <laughs> we can't let you block Montreal. It's Montreal, blocked anyway. We know that. So you've got the three three conditions. One, that it has to be religious in nature, or, or actually not religious in nature, conscience in nature. It says religion or conscience. It could be pacifist or whatever. Second, that it has to be sincere, so that you can't just invent a religion for some purpose. And the third one is even then, it has to be reasonable. It has to be not so onerous for society that we couldn't uh, accommodate. So, Marie-Hélène, as a child of Bill 101, who had therefore no right to go to school in English, because you didn't, I mean, one would have thought in modernity there wouldn't be hereditary rights anymore, but uh, welcome to Quebec! Um, since you didn't inherit the blood right to uh, in, instruction in the English language, et cetera, et cetera, and you can't put up signs in the language you want, and God forbid our office get a little bigger than that, we'll all be obliged to speak French to each other instead of voluntarily speaking French, which is what we do do anyway. You know, if I were ever told to speak French, I'd stop. And yet we <laughs> speak French every day, even at night at home. So it's, it's just as long as you don't tell me to. That's the language I live in. But be that as it may, how do you feel about Bill 101 and its uh, sacrosanct status in this province? Well, <laughs> it's um, it's a tricky question because my opinion changed over the years. At first, um, I was not just proud, but I at first I felt because uh, in my surroundings, I knew mostly people who would come from the different ethnic background who would uh, value English over French. So my the first stage was to understand that there was a need to value French and and stop a certain erosion of French. However, later in life, I not I wasn't that much older, maybe I You're was like not. 17 You're or something like that. You still look <laughs> 17, marie Don't rub it in. <laughs> and then I realized that as francophones, we, we were being robbed of certain possibilities because we didn't have enough exposure to master the English language maybe as much as we would like to. And I continued to uh, to feel that there was a certain unfairness to us francophones, especially as I was raising children because I would have liked them to have uh, more English, uh, especially my, my first child. And then I now what thirty years old? Something like that. Yes, more than seventeen. And then I think that 
in terms of the schools, they, they, they were able, the French schools were able to listen to this need of francophone parents and, and provide different kinds of program. And now, especially in Montreal, and I know that there's a difference between Montreal and the rest of Quebec, but in Montreal, it's possible for francophone children to get very good English education. And uh, um, I wish the rest of the province would benefit from that too. Well, I always believe that we should have a system, a second system of schools that operate 70% in French, 75% in French, 25% in English, open to everybody. Yes. And the reason is not only giving the people the chance to learn both languages, but putting them in together, having them yes. uh, go to the same schools. Yes. For here, example... Because you only really learn the language when you have friends yes. who speak the language. Yes. I, uh, speaking as a woman with a Hispanic husband <laughs> who managed to learn Spanish like seven minutes after meeting him because I said, this one's a keeper. Got to speak his language. But the last thing that really bothered me was recently uh, there was, for example, uh, in an hospital another one of those non-existent crisis, but that was presented as a crisis in the media where some employees were speaking Creole against them, but between them, not against, but between themselves. And this was viewed as against Bill 101, and I think that was completely crazy. I, I mean, they're, 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 I agree that French is very much a part of the Quebec identity and is something that can unify all of us, even the English speakers Quebecers, uh, so it needs to be promoted, but I think it needs to be done il- intelligently. Well, the problem I see as a member of the other, well, a member of what I'm actually a member of no community. That being said, I'm a Jew and I'm irreligious, and I'm technically a francophone because I was born to a French mother and I only spoke French till she passed away. And uh, and then raised in English. I'm also an Anglophone, so I'm an everything or a nothing a phone. Yeah. But what I have no, I noticed, I'm I'm not anything. <laughs> I would never say that, Julius. You're everything. To right, me. but I I see myself as being outside all communities. But, but I think the Anglos. The mm-hmm. problem that I see is is uh, and there was an awesome article about this. In fact, I'm trying to remember who was it. Robert Lidman. Oh uh, yeah, of course, <laughs> Robert Lidman, who points out correctly that with the the constant constant attacks and intimidation of the of not only the English community but anybody who dares ask for services in the English language or speak English or function in English if there were an English if there were an English article of clothing it would have been prohibited in 1976 so people keep leaving leaving there's nobody in my high school class or CJP class and frankly even my law school class who's still here even from law school of my class there's, of 1980, a few, there's a handful but they're otherwise all gone high school reunions for my high school Westmount High have been celebrated in Toronto for <laughs> the last 35 years they did do one in Montreal and I was so offended I didn't go so I'm stupid but be that as it may when I try to hire Anglophones phones. You know what I find? I find that the culture and the language has really been exterminated. And I am using provocative language because Anglophone kids do not learn the English language in school because just not taught. Maybe because there's not a population of teachers who's going to teach English anymore as a language. And then the French that, that the English kids learn going to English schools that are immersion, even immersion schools, because these kids do get a big exposure to French, is completely inadequate because they're going to school with other English kids. So I have the Francophone kids from the good families who go to private schools. Their French is impeccable and excellent, and their English is pretty damn good. 
because they've they have gotten some English because they're out of the public system and away from political hysteria, so they learn some English. But the English kids learn no language properly, so they are illiterate in all languages. Well, it's perhaps <laughs> if they uh, because the, the public school system has uh, fallen. Uh, perhaps the pr- products of the French public school system are also not so literate or so uh, um, uh, attuned to both languages. Uh, I think. I noticed when um, my kids were in public school um, in English, and then my, one of my my youngest son went to high school in French. English school was was uh, less disposed to teach classics and things like that than Notre Dame, which did teach a little bit of it, not enough, but considerably more. So before we close out this uh, endlessly fascinating <laughs> podcast, Marilene, I do want to come back for a couple of minutes to the hijab prohibition. <laughs> what do you think of Professor Lecky's argument? And he's about to present it soon at the Lord Reading Law Society. Uh, Professor Lecky argues that even though Quebec has invoked the notwithstanding clause so they can have the thrill of discriminating against Jews, Sikhs, and Muslims at least for five years, he says that doesn't prevent anybody from still going through the courts, having the law declared to be discriminatory, where the effect of the judgment could only kick in after the five years, or at least it would inform the populace that their law is no good. And that would be an entirely legitimate way to make the provincial legislator understand that they've passed a bad law and should repeal it. I hope the Quebec population in general will listen, but I share Julius's concern with respect to the populism not just in Canada, in many, many countries in the world. But I think that the courts have to hold very tight to their duty and the courts have to keep the scrutiny on legislation because this is, this is a moment where it's crucial for them to do, to do it. And uh, I think Professor Lecky and, and others have been very good at demonstrating that this constitutional challenge should go on and thankfully the court of appeal agrees because there would the uh have allowed authorized the appeal of a first judgment that was rendered with respect to bill 21 so i have a lot of faith in our judicial system to continue the dialogue and Hopefully, the population will open their their ears. <laughs> Furthermore, just as it happened under Bill 178, when Bourassa used the notwithstanding clause on language, uh, there is a forum in the United Nations. And it is very likely that, as it did in those days, the McIntyre case, uh, that the United Nations will hold it to be invalid. Now, uh, it must be pointed out that Mr. Bourassa and Mr. Ryan complied when they got the judgment of the United Nations. They didn't well, Quebec, liberal party. They didn't. Well, I don't know. Bourassa oh, was pretty Quebec. bloody-minded, but uh, I, he didn't want Quebec to be a rogue state. And I'm uh, not yeah, sure but that hold on. The United be. Nations already wrote yeah. us a letter. We're already being made fun of internationally. It's page one of CNN. That couple. There's the couple who sued Air Canada for the 150th time because while they were scrutinizing every corner of the airplane, they actually found the manufacturer of the belt buckles has the word lift on the belt buckle. Clearly, they don't understand the word lift. 
cannot figure out what that is and what that means and how to use the belt buckle, even though the agent actually shows you how to use the belt mm. buckle in case you don't know how to read uh, or you've never been on a plane before. And they were actually awarded damages. So the world laughs at us like they laughed at us for past the gate. And because nobody reads English, the people here, many of the people here don't know the world is laughing at us. I cringe. <laughs> but I will conclude on this because I want to keep us on Marilyn's optimistic note. Professor Hogg, bless his soul. Everybody, lawyer or not lawyer, should listen to that man speak or read his books because Professor Hogg explained to us the brilliance of the constitutional dialogue, that in fact, there is really not a last authority, that Parliament or the provincial legislator try to pass laws that are good laws that make everybody happy. That's the truth of it. Let's, let's give some credit to the conscientiousness of our legislators. And then these matters get submitted to the courts and men and women who are just as conscientious scrutinize these laws to make sure that they pass constitutional muster and see if there are issues that could be discrimination by reason of sexual orientation or skin color, religion or age. And then if there's a flaw in the law, the courts will say there's a flaw. Sometimes they'll, they'll say if there's a flaw, we call upon parliament to fix it. And sometimes if the flaw is really terrible, like a breaching gay rights or the rights of people of color, they'll declare the law and operant right away. And then the ball goes back to parliament again to fix its law so that the will of the people can still be respected in a manner that doesn't cause harm to various individuals. And it's the brilliance of that dialogue. If that could be taught in high schools every day, I think we'd save a lot of marriages. I really think we would save a lot of marriages because the point comes by engaging in a dialogue that, that motivates consensus and respect and respect for all. And that while you're trying to do good in society at large, that there's a safeguard of protection that you don't make a mistake that causes harm and unintentional harm, often unintentional, except for Freed in Alberta. <laughs> we know that, Julius. We know that case. That's an inside joke for lawyers. Um, <laughs> But other than that, I do believe most uh, lawmakers are trying to do their best. And, and uh, thank God, that's a fun expression, we have that charter. And on that yes. note, my friends. Thank you for thank this. You. That was fun. Entertaining conversation, yeah. as always. <laughs> Clearly, we need to be elected king, queen, and queen of this society. <laughs> and we would remedy all these problems. Yeah. We would say everybody can wear all clothes and no clothes, as you wish. <laughs> that, of course, is not permitted yet, and the courts have upheld basic rules. You have to cover up two areas. <laughs> to the great chagrin of my wonderful professor. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Julie, I had to edit on that little note. <laughs> Good talk.